You've probably heard the line before. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. It speaks to the deluge of data we now rely on to make decisions in our organisations and businesses. But in a world where inequality and the scarcity of resources are both increasing, perhaps a better statement is measure what matters. And that's certainly what my guest today is all about. Georgina Camp is CEO and founder of Huber Social a social impact consulting firm that has big ambitions for enabling all organizations to measure their impact. But what's unique about Huber is that their model goes beyond outcomes and outputs. It puts a value on the impact a project is having in terms of human well-being. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Tredgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment and spending decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Georgina's passion for her work is clear. She talks with so much excitement about building a community of like-minded people around her. It's infectious. At the same time, she's dedicated to bringing analytical rigor to the very human elements that make up the social sector. It's something her background has certainly prepared her for. She started out in the army, then she studied law, before she shifted into humanitarian work with a master's in development studies. The culmination of it all is Huber Social. And in my conversation today, we dig into the organization's path towards growth, why impact measurement is more important than ever for all organizations, and the pros and cons of using surveys to gather data. Plus, while I was speaking to an expert in the art of the survey, I took the opportunity to ask how I might put together a questionnaire for you, my listeners. That's right, I'm keen to get some insights about what you like and dislike, and maybe even start to measure the impact that I'm having as the Good Future podcast grows and evolves. And of course, I can't back out now. I'm being held accountable by Georgina and by you, my listeners, so I'm locked in. By the time this goes live, I'll have a survey put together that you can access on my website. So I'd be really grateful and really stoked if you could take a minute and share your ideas about the podcast. You'll find it at johntreadgold.com and just look for the podcast link. But enough of that. I had a lot of fun speaking with Georgie. She made it all the way over from Perth to be with me in the studio at Hub Australia in Sydney. And I just hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, nothing left to do but dive in to my chat with Georgina Camp. Here we go. have you here on the show it's long overdue and even better to have you here in this studio live not live but in person at, at hub australia in sydney thanks for coming all the way from perth amazing that you'd come all the way just for my little podcast absolutely wouldn't miss it thanks john <laughs> i'm sure there were no other uh, no other pressing meetings that you had here but i'm um, great to have you and look, we've known each other for quite a few years now and as is often the case it came from mutual friends saying oh i should catch up but then there were more friends. Another friend said, oh, you should catch up. You should meet Georgie. And then another. So it seemed that we must have something in common. Mm, I think we were both fans of each other on LinkedIn before we really knew each other as well. As everything you posted, I was like, oh, 
This guy, we're really aligned on how we think about things. So. There we go. Good little yeah. community going on. Look, we finally caught up for coffee and we went so deep we didn't even realise they were trying to pack up the coffee, the cafe around us. And maybe that's a good sign. Maybe that's a good thing. But, um, yeah, maybe we need to set some agendas. When we have meetings, we tend to waffle. But, yeah, it's great to, you know, share ideas. And that's what this is all about. So hopefully we can, we can get into a bit of that and try and stay on track today. And most of the time what we did talk about was impact measurement. So we're both massive nerds, clearly. But it's a topic that gets brought up on, on 90% of the conversations I have here. Why do you think impact measurement has become such an important issue for everyone, from NGOs, social enterprises, and, and even now mainstream corporates, and then on the funders' side, philanthropists, impact investors? Why do you think it's become so important? Well, I think it's driven different agendas from different kind of industries. But at the top level, I think we're in a really exciting time where collectively society has this recognition that we know so much more matters than economic growth and and wealth. And we don't know how else to quantify that. So we've been looking at, well, how else do we start to value everything else in our life? And that's, for me, kind of the overall role of measuring impact and measuring social value and then of course when you come down to private sector we've had huge acknowledgement that it's really good for business it's no longer a, a nice to have or a tick in the box that it's the ultimate sort of understanding your customers understanding your employees to drive those business outcomes it's not one or the other they go hand in hand so if you're a an astute business person you absolutely should be measuring your impact and and understanding the needs of the people that you impact, but also that you work with uh, to maximise performance overall. And then I guess in the more the social sector and where we really started thinking about why impact measurement or how we came to answer a lot of the problems in that sector or the challenges in that sector with measurement was that for too long we've been holding organisations and projects to account on measures that aren't at all aligned to what they're actually trying to achieve. And so that creates that behaviour of tick the box, get the funding and then go back to the work that really matters. And certainly where we started was I'd heard too many times that, well, you can't measure that stuff. You can't measure the stuff that really matters, like increased participation in society or just feeling better and holding yourself more confidently. So that's where we started. How do you measure that? Because until you measure it, you can't account for it. You can't justify decisions on that and then you can't actually improve and drive efficiency in the social sector. So now that we've really seen this swell of that we can measure that stuff, it's really exciting and become so intrinsic in every sort of performance model. Mm. So we've got hundreds of years of experience of measuring financial outcomes, mm. but not social outcomes. And that's what we just talked a lot about. So how can we measure it? What's changed? What's new? What, what's sort of the innovation? When we started exploring, okay, what is the overall goal and how do we measure that? And when you say we, Huber Social? Yeah, sorry, Huber Social. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of that and and how you guys measure impact? Yeah, certainly. So Huber Social started, there was a core team of five of us five years ago, funny enough. We were working in the private sector as consultants, but we all discovered that we're aligned on our values and, and we're working in the social sector as sort of passion projects on the side. And we could see that what we did in the private sector, which was really in summary like being very outcome focused and doing systems thinking and design thinking to understand what are all the parts of the system that you need working together to achieve that outcome and then how do you measure that, that thinking could really help in the social sector. So five years ago we started exploring 
whether that was true and how we could actually add some value. And we started working with a number of different charities across different sectors, youth at risk, male survivors of childhood sexual abuse, victims of domestic violence. And what we could see was that no matter what the challenges were, if you work with people, the goal is always the same. And that's about putting someone in the best position to fulfil their potential and achieve their own well-being. So well-being for each of us what is that state, but what matters for each of us is different. So then we thought about, well, how do you measure that if it's different every time? And well, because the goal's always the same every time, we start by measuring someone's well-being. So when I talk about well-being, I'm talking about someone's own assessment on where they are in life. So it is subjective, it has to be. Well-being is subjective. And then underneath that, to understand what matters for someone, well, we each need to have the capability and the opportunity to be in that position. So we look through those two lens and map someone's level of capability and opportunity to understand what's driving their level of well-being, and then do analysis to understand what actually matters, so what's priority needs to put them in that best position. So that's how we think about measuring social impact. And where that sort of differs to a lot of other frameworks out there is because it's so broad and it's different in so many contexts, we've just developed so many different frameworks that will apply in one context, whereas ours can universally apply because we say that the goal is always the same. And then we just have a very holistic set of human needs that we can we configure to that context. So if we take, I guess, the other wellbeing measurement frameworks out there, the approach has been, well, it's always from someone's point of view of what matters and we each have our own perspective on sort of basic human needs. So we might select a set of indicators like education rates, physical health, employment, and say, well, if we're good across all of them, then we can infer from that overall we're in a better position of well-being. But what we're finding is that as we apply our framework in different contexts and we have a very holistic set of indicators, and then we do that analysis of what matters for well-being. we're finding very different results across these sectors. So we're not doing anyone justice by pre-selecting what matters for someone's well-being. And some real examples of that is, so we did a project in northern Uganda, and the two highest correlates with well-being there was access to water and time spent in program. So that wasn't too surprising in that in those circumstances, that sort of makes sense, and access to water is a basic human need or, or something that we all appreciate as one. But then the next application of the project, uh, of the framework, sorry, was in a slum in India, and the three highest correlates with well-being, one was access to water, two was nutrition, and then the third was problem-solving skills. And that came out as having a unique relationship with well-being above like the safety of the community, physical health, disease. And so that is really surprising. It was surprising from an outsider's point of view. If you're working in that community, that didn't surprise them at all, nor did it surprise the service providers. And so through this, we took that data-driven approach to have that conversation and say, actually, in this context, it's less about focusing on these things and more about giving people the skills to get themselves out of trouble. So does the data sometimes inform, you know, the service provider that what they're doing is actually achieving something different? Or perhaps Mm. it's just a matter of shifting the direction of, of, you know, what they're trying to achieve? Yeah, so the two real reasons anyone measures their impact is one, to prove what they're doing works, and the second is to improve, if you need to. So, yes, certainly we have where 
when you start working with a service provider, they'll have a point of view on what they think someone needs more and so they'll be focusing on, say, like at Youth at Risk, a lot of outdoor activities and so a majority of their resources are going to that. But then through this analysis it might um, reveal that actually that has quite a small impact and there's some other things like you want to create more of an environment where the relationships are more stable. So focus more resources on, well, how do you make sure you get retention of staff, like make them happier, get them sticking around, because that's what really matters to well-being for these people in this context. So yeah, it is, it's about those refinements. But more often than not, it's not necessarily asking them to change what they do, but it gives them the data to be able to have the conversation with the funders to say why they know that's so important. So if they know it's actually all about, say, the case manager's relationship with a person, but they don't know how to say, like, it's more beneficial that I spend more time with this person than you add another program on. We can actually give that data. And an example of that in our early application with some youth at risk was results came back across this cohort that factors of resilience were really low. So they trialled a resilience program. And what we were able to show was one, well-being shifted positively, but two, it did build those different factors of resilience capabilities. And we could take that to the board and then the board said, yes, great, go ahead, we'll invest in that year on year and roll it out across everyone. And so that really supports the ground levels work to say, we know what really matters, but we haven't had a currency to be able to talk to the people with the money to show them that in numbers. So that's the power of kind of the impact measurement. Yeah, and adding nuance, I guess, to, to step beyond outcomes. So it's, it's more than we've educated X number of kids. It's more than we've given out X number of mosquito nets. Yeah. It's what is the community benefit of that? How has that increased wellbeing? Yeah. I was lucky enough in the last couple of weeks to be one of the first people to go through the Huber Social Impact Consultant training course. So all across it, we, we dug into the framework case study and how it can be applied. Interesting for me because I come from an economics background and we measure things like GDP and, and the key here is that that's actually not a very good measure of well-being. Sure, productivity, and we know that even you know, the creator of, of GDP, that economists all agree that it's really not a very good indicator of prosperity and well-being, as you guys say. So you've taken it a step further, really interesting model. In that way and, and getting a, a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of it, what's the business plan for Huber Social? How are you sort of trying to help companies to, to implement sure. this stuff? Well, our overall vision is really to provide this, I won't say new measure of success for humanity or of progress for humanity because it's actually not a new concept at all. Since Aristotle, we've understood that, well, we've kind of acknowledged or people have acknowledged that the greater good, the chief good is something beyond economic wealth or virtue or honour. It is this idea of living a life of well-being, however you want to choose to define that. But it's actually, we want to create a system that makes that filter into the way that we do everything. So at the moment, what drives everything is the financial system. We're looking to create that. So for us to be able to achieve that, we've got the framework essentially. And we need to apply that, collect the data so that we understand the social value of services. And then we can direct resources to maximise that. So where we started with that was we were just doing the social impact measurement projects, project by project, but we can't achieve much scale or accelerate to build this global wellbeing database very quickly. And what we're also finding was 
organisations wanted that capability in-house because even though we're very affordable compared to a lot of other um, approaches out there because we, we don't have to recreate a framework every time, we wanted to be able to offer that and build the capability within organisations. So accreditation makes a lot of sense because we can reach that scale very quickly to train people to apply our framework to our standard and with the amount of rigour that we know that the data coming back is true to the way that we would do it and then that fills up this global wellbeing database. So yes, so we're focusing now on accrediting people because we can have a lot more reach to do that. And the beauty of that, there's so many benefits in that instead of, say, us always travelling abroad and having to go through a rigorous process of making sure the way we're doing it is culturally and linguistically appropriate, we can use consultants that are from that environment and so they're a lot more attuned to that and they'll still follow of course the process and standard to apply that but it just removes that which is always an extra cost and everything so and what's wonderful about it is it's also creating almost a whole new area of employment which didn't exist before where like yourself John and other people that attended that course and and the ones that are lining up for the next one is that we're finding where not even our generation, but just where people are at at the moment, where we've got these incredibly powerful professional skill sets, but we have, we're at this point in humanity where we want to do more and we actually want to do more for humanity and we're no longer waiting to make our money and then give back because in many ways our generation's been quite fortunate that we've had stable economies and stable employment, so that's taken care of. It's opened us up the opportunity to say, what else matters? And then when we ask ourselves that, it's like, well, each other and how do I help and how do I actually do good right now in the work that I do? Through accreditation, we're able to connect with all these fantastic professionals in their own right to also have a real impact using their professional backgrounds as well, which makes us stronger because we learn. I mean, we had psychologists in that room. We had yourself. I think in the next course, we've got people from all different backgrounds, again, a Red Cross worker of 20 years' experience, people from the financial sector. So we're getting some really different uh, skill sets coming in, but then all acknowledging that actually what matters overall is for all of us to have the opportunity to create our own wellbeing. So it's really powerful. Uh, you know, you talked about this data input that you get you know, from the project, and this is obviously, as you said, wellbeing is quite subjective. And this data input comes from surveys, which is, I think, quite interesting. And, and surveys, I think, can be fabulous when done really well and get amazing insights. But at the same time, they can be done badly. At best, they're not useful. At worst, they give you bad data and you make the wrong decisions. So tell us about your survey model and what makes a good survey. Certainly, yeah. Here in like the Western world, we have survey fatigue. I, mean, I think when we see it pop up in our emails, it's terrible. So I've always been like, oh, I can't wait for a better way to collect data. And there are better ways. But really, when you're collecting subjective measurements, when you're asking someone where they are at in life, there's no other way to do it. And of course, there's a science to doing a good survey. So making sure you're accounting for biases. We do it two ways. We can do it, distribute it online even through like Facebook Messenger and things, or we can do hard copies. And the response in different contexts is really fascinating. So when we did the project in northern Uganda and we surveyed over 1,100 people in the communities, a lot of the people there had never even held a pencil before. And it was really 
incredible to see them feel very proud of like being listened to and knowing what that meant whereas when you are in back in western world where we're just so sick of kind of ticking and and flicking getting it done we have to think through that so how do we stop people doing that and sometimes it is like hard copy is great because it just seems to engage a different part of our brain we kind of stop and think through it a bit more versus when it's online but then there's all tricks, simple things like reverse the scale and stuff so people can't go through and just go like 7777. But it's also obviously in the way that you ask the questions. So you, for the example like problem solving, we don't just ask, are you good at problem solving? There's an, probably like four different ways you kind of measure someone's level of problem solving and you ask it kind of like, are you feeling happy lately? Are you feeling sad lately? And those reverse so that you can test if somebody's just not giving kind of an honest answer if something doesn't make sense. So there is a lot of science in developing mm. a good survey. A lot of psychology and you've obviously got a lot yeah. of rigour behind, you know, the surveys that you guys use. Yeah, certainly. Two of our founders on the core team had incredible experience. I mean, I wouldn't have attempted this without having their background. So the two senior guys in the team had been being flown around the world teaching top consultants how to actually think about assurance and measurements and developing surveys. So when we were kind of faced with this, but you can't measure what really matters, I thought, I reckon I know two guys that could give it a good crack. <laughs> so that's how we kind of had the confidence to even attempt something like this. Yeah, oh, you're mm. definitely giving it a good crack. And, and look, ever since, you know, sitting down and going through the course, I've just had surveys on the brain and, and really become really sort of obsessed with the potential for them and how to make mm. a good one. I mean, it started to fall into what I'm doing here. I started this um, podcast last year. I should actually give a, a shout out to a fellow podcaster, Rachel Mason Nunn, who you know, she was the one who convinced me to, to take the leap and start my own podcast. So always be grateful to her uh, for that. This whole thing is far more work than I anticipated, exceeded my expectations in, in terms of the people I meet, the number of people listening. But what I'd love to know is I want to know more about the people that are listening. Mm. Um, and, you know, they've surely found it in lots of different ways. And I'd love to understand. And I think that would really be sort of the next step that I need to really take this to the next step and, and give them what they want and find out what people find most interesting and, and, you know, maybe what great. So thinking about putting together a survey of my audience and maybe while I've got you here, you can give me some advice on what I should be thinking about when I put together questions. I mean, obviously, you know, it's not going to be very long and I'm going to make it kind of snappy and, and not make it too onerous because, yeah. you know, survey fatigue is definitely real. But I hope that the people that have made the effort to listen and would appreciate that this is sort of a startup and that, you know, it's adapting as I go and that they can be part of it, you know, and they can get in at the ground floor and, and help me build something and build a community. Yeah, fantastic. And kudos to you because I think it's a bit, it's always a bit nervous because you're really asking for very honest feedback there and everyone should be doing it, shouldn't they? But I guess you always start with, well, what do you want to measure? Like, what do you want to know from them? And then what's the best way to do that? One thing when we're developing surveys is, so we'll often, when we're sitting with a client or we're applying it in a new context, we get thrown a lot of concepts at us that people want us to measure, so like empowerment or leadership. And you have to actually recognise that they're concepts and break them down to, okay, well, what is leadership and what 
is empowerment. So I'm not sure how that applies in this context for you, mm. and your, but I think you have to be really sure that you're really asking what you want to know because otherwise you get quite excited by getting results back and then you're like, well, actually, what does that tell me? So you have to sort of every question you have in there think the so what of, mm. I think is is a good way to think about it. And then whilst you want to make it easy for people to complete, you also have to be careful not to gamify it too much mm. because then you do lack that critical analysis being switched on in the brain, which is what you really want because then you get someone's honest answers versus like, do I want to buy that car? Yeah, I like that car, I'll buy it. Like you need them to <laughs> think about, well, actually, do I need that car? Is that car the best choice? Because that's when you, yeah, you get the real answer. Yeah, and I, well, I think that that comes back to the fact that, yes, I started the podcast for, I thought I knew the reasons, but then it's kind of morphed and evolved. And as I come back, it's like, oh, hang on, it's far more than, it's far more than impact investing. It, it's about what is our economy and, and is our economy changing? Could we change it? And is it functioning the best for us as, as people? And, and that then comes back to what I think I've always been excited about ever since I studied economics you know, however yeah. many decades ago, that economics really is a philosophy. Mm. And I think it's quite powerful in that way. And I think it gets forgotten. It gets tied up with accounting and these yeah. simple number type systems. But look, you know, so all of those factors. So I guess that comes back to the questions of maybe if I asked, you know, what do you get most out of the podcast, that that might surprise me, that there might be things that I really didn't yeah. account for. I mean, that's what I'd really like to find out. And, you know, constructive criticism would be welcome. And you obviously want to understand what the impact is of, there we go. That's of right. your podcast on your listeners. So thinking about, obviously, we would say that overall impact of anything should be well-being but underneath that there's particular program outcomes so for you what's the actual outcomes that you're hoping to deliver through the podcast so is it building awareness about impact investing and and other um, developments in the social sector is it also providing access to that information so thinking that and then what of that do you want to measure and how do you want to ask that to understand that you're actually achieving that. But yeah, also understanding, well, hang on, what do people want to actually know from this as well? And am I meeting those expectations? So I think that's right. And I think too often I forget, you know, well, hang on, what is my impact? Mm. You know, I've talked about it so much about impact measurement. It's like, oh, hang on, maybe I can measure that. I mean, you go to conferences as well and we talk about all of this stuff. And then you're like, well, hang on, yeah. you know, who booked this venue? Where did the money come from? You know, what's the business model? Is it additive and all these sorts of things when these very structures and so you can get a little bit too worked up and you don't want to break down every little part of, of your existence yeah. and get too wrapped up but but no that's right and people might um, just like the sound of your voice oh there we go <laughs> uh, which is calm. I mean look for so long I, I was so I mean I was never a public speaker you know I had a lisp my whole upbringing and, and was petrified of speaking wow. and so I think this was kind of well, I'm going to go the other direction and just push it lean into and, it yeah, yeah that's right so Amazing. So it's all an evolution and, and then people have said, oh, you've got a great voice for that. I'm like, oh my God, never, never imagined that anybody would say that to me my whole life, but mm. there yeah, we go. Well, I think that's really like responsible to measure your impact in this way and to understand what your listeners really get out of it and how you can feed that because ultimately that will be a recipe for success. I mean, if we just sort of at summary level think about what you want to achieve out of this, which is I come and listen to it because I do feel that you're, you're very in tune with like what's leading in the social sector space beyond impact investing. So you've really got your finger on the pulse there. 
So if you get that that's what everyone's getting out from it, then you can really continue to focus that and feed that message and that would surely build your success. But if you don't measure it, you don't understand. You can say you're doing it, but you might not actually know if you're hitting the mark. So... All right, well, I've done it now. It's out here, <laughs> yeah, so I've to got a challenge. I have a to, lot of talking about surveys. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll have to put one together. I'll have to find a survey platform. I'll have to... I mean, I, look, by the time this goes live, that should give me about a week. I'll, uh, I'll have something on the website and people can log on if they want to. JohnTreadgold.com, they can jump onto the survey. Any general listeners want to give me an insight, then I'd be stoked. And that'd be great. We can build this community. So, all right, I'll have to knuckle down and uh, locked in. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that, guys. But enough about me. It's all about Georgie. Now, a lot of people on this podcast have had really interesting journeys to find where they're working. And yours is one of the most interesting. You've done a whole range of things. I mean, you were in the army at one stage. You've been a management consultant. Can you tell us about some of the early days? I mean, what, um, what was the lure of the military? Oddly, it started really young. I don't know where that came from because none of my family's in the military. Like, I did always feel a sense of service. And when I was four years old, I asked for my birthday to join the army and my mum was just like, who, is, who have I got here? Who's this little person? But yeah, so I, did, I went on and I did reserves for five years as a, an army officer and it was fantastic. And it was quite heartbreaking for me to, I'm someone that pushes for a lot of authenticity and on my own journey, like you're there serving the interests of the nation. That was acceptable for me for a while, but then it was more about actually the relationships in the military and the camaraderie. So it was more I'll serve people, at which I guess serving interests of the nation is like that. So that was part-time, but I was, um, my background's in the law. And I found, well, if you really want to have a positive impact and like solve problems, the law and the military are a necessary part of that spectrum, but they're at the very pointy end of that. I want to be in the preventative stage. So that led me to then study Masters of Development Studies and work in a number of local and international projects with that. And so you had studied law? Studied law and international politics and then jumped across to development and unfortunately found myself as equally frustrated or or that I didn't fit in there because in many ways you're implementing solutions that are like a band-aid to a much bigger systemic problem. So I was really stuck in this intersection where I was going, I don't really fit or identify with either sectors. I don't know what to do now. So at that soul searching point, and that was when I was just really fortunate. I was doing consulting, thinking like, this isn't, this is not at all what I want to be doing. But it gave me the tools. It gave me that way of thinking that all of a sudden brought my worlds together and saw that, yes, it is all part of one system. And if you want to get that system working together, you need to provide that roadmap, which is the measurement. So that's how like Huber came to be. And yeah, it was, such an interesting journey because you you feel like you're going off track but if you keep following what feels right to you and what aligns with you you eventually get to kind of your purpose I guess. Was the realization that all of the parts are there and that you just kind of need to make that decision yourself? I'm kind of thinking if you know there are people in their cubicle or look even if they're in the corner office and they're not happy they don't have purpose they've got the money they've got the success do they need to make a radical shift or could it just be reframing the situation Mm. it's each to their own so you have to find where you feel like you can have an impact and be true to yourself even in doing what we're doing we're doing the measurement so we're providing the picture of what needs of people are and then the program evaluation side 
I so often feel like when I'm in the field, I'm like, oh my God, I'm just surveying people. I want to be there delivering the service. I want to be on the ground, the real tangible fix. But I also know I'd be worn out and no help to anyone so quickly. So I have to remind myself that my role in this system is through the measurement. So I think it's finding your place and owning that. And yeah, I don't think it needs to be radical. Gosh, I think... I think it all starts with like being kind to each other. If we all just did yeah. that, imagine the yeah. positive effect of that. So I think, you know, you've got to start at home and in your own relationships and live and breathe that, and then that should ripple out. So I don't, don't think it needs to be radical at all. Yeah, I think that's really important mm. because especially in the corporate world, it's a tendency towards the rat race and aggression and, and getting ahead. And if you are in that situation and don't find it satisfying or enriching, that, yeah, you don't have to quit and go join the Peace Corps, that you can just maybe switch your day and just add a little bit more compassion into the office and, you know, may have certain discussions and and that could be the shift. And, you know, we talk about that with everything, that the power of one is huge. Well, in the end, it's all you can do, right? Because you can't really influence other people. It's just yourself. That's quite a journey. And we've talked about hypersocial trying to engage people that want to be part of the community, to be accredited as an impact measurement consultant. What sort of traits do you think are uh, important? For us, it's all about values. So we do have a set of values, but it's more what we're looking for in candidates is that drive to actually have a real impact through their work and believe that that's possible. It's not a set um, professional background at all. Although, obviously, experience in different fields is a a bonus. But, yeah, really for me, it's do they have the traits that we can see will hold to the standard of Huber Social. So we are quite serious in the way that we want to, such an aggressive word, but enforce the standards around how it's applied and the behaviours and the values. I mean, we started with values and, of course, unfortunately, you missed day one, but... I'm confident you have them, John. (laughs) And then how you live them as behaviours throughout that process. But if somebody isn't displaying that, then we will be quite swift to act on that because we have to maintain the integrity of the system. Otherwise, the value of it will not be trusted and it won't be used to make decisions. So, I mean, it's beyond me, it's beyond the team, it's beyond anyone. It's actually the value in the system and what that can provide to change humanity really so if that's the ultimate goal then the integrity has to match that I'm really fascinated by the different people that are approaching me now that we've finally started to put a little bit of marketing around being terrible at this but yeah people from like 30 years in wealth management who've said this fits with me this is what I want to do and then there's people that have given their life to the social sector and they see this as kind of at the frontier of that as well as, as an improvement, a new norm. So it's really exciting. Yeah, I think, and I've heard it over and over, is people walk into these rooms and into certain meetings and they, they sort of have a sigh of relief. They say, oh, I found my people. Yeah. You know, there is another way. Yeah. That you can run a business, you can run an organisation, you get people working together with a really, you know, an altruistic goal that in the past would have been a bit, you know, fuzzy, a bit warm fuzzy. And it's, it's showing returns. You know, that this is a much better way to operate. People aren't getting burnt out. The simple factor that you're measuring what matters and that you might have for a long time been measuring the wrong thing. And that's been informing your decisions and you wonder why, you know, you're falling behind. So suddenly that shift. But look, a community and that sort of thing. And I think it's interesting that 
you'll probably find that you know you'll just attract the right kind of people that the switch will go off and they'll go that's what I'm looking Mm. for so I think we don't really feel that we own it the role of Huber in this whole system or the core Huber is just to maintain the integrity of it and continue to strengthen that so to continue to provide the education but really it's around maintaining the integrity and the standard we're building a community to help us strengthen that so we want people from all different skill sets we want to learn how to do it better I think we've fully confident in the value of the way that we've thought about this and our approach but I'm no fool I I know we don't have the best tools necessarily or there could be a better way to measure spirituality or something so always looking to improve that in that way we're really an anti-fragile system because we continue to extend like go into a new context test and learn how to do it better we're not saying this is the standard and it's written in stone forevermore it's we've got this approach this is massive it's incredibly ambitious it is a call to action for professionals for anyone out there who actually connects and aligns with this to come help us do this because I guess that's where we got to we started exploring this five years ago and then when we got to this point it was like we actually think we've come up with a way that could have a massive impact on the world it even has a massive impact on at a project level once you see that you can't turn back you see how big that is you need the help of other people like there's no way the five of us or or myself want to have this on my shoulders alone like it's too heavy I've been saying for a long time I need a team around me it's now we're building this really powerful community and um, I'm breathing a sigh of relief because it's just bringing incredible expertise that can really like pimp our framework (laughs) yeah and it's really exciting so yeah I'm getting very enriched by this next chapter of building this network out. Yeah, well, building that team, building that community, hopefully I'm helping doing that today and that that my listeners can get involved. What would be the best um, place for them to reach out? A website, social media? Yeah, our website. There's a section on accreditation if you just jump on there and you can read about it. There's also the email there if you want to organise a catch-up with one of us, but it's just info at hubersocial.com.au and you can download an application form from there. So we're running our next course in June in Perth, then we'll be doing one in London in July, and then we haven't locked in dates for the rest, but we're looking for repeat in Sydney, as well as up in Singapore, and probably another one in Perth. So if you're from those places, and even if you're not, reach out, because we're just starting to understand pockets of where there's a keen interest and passion for this. So will go where is needed. (laughs) Very good, very good, all over the place. Well, look, as I said at the beginning, you and I need to be very careful about not going off on tangents too much, and we don't want to bore everybody. But uh, So we'll wrap up today, but of course my final question is about books. Are there any books that have had a big impact on on how you see the world or just what's on your side table? What have you got? Oh, okay. This one probably doesn't seem quite as aligned to the work I've just been talking about but this book is so great it has ruined me for a a good period now because like every book I pick up I just I'm like you don't don't compare Um, but it's a book called Circe by Madeline Miller and it's her second book her first book was Song for Achilles and she takes lesser known characters from Greek mythology and then expands and fleshes out their story and she just does that so fantastically. So Song for Achilles was through Achilles' uh, lifelong friend and lover, Patroclus's eyes, and then Circe is a lesser known deity, the 
daughter of the sun god Helios and a sea nymph, and she was banished to an island, but she eventually chose to become mortal, and she interacts with humans. She's, she's different. From the beginning, she can see she doesn't think like the rest of the gods, and she really has empathy for humans and chooses to, yeah, become human. So it's, it's a beautiful story about, yeah, the beauty of being human. Oh, very good. Yeah, Greek mythology is so interesting. Like there mm. aren't many stories that, you know, don't harken back to that foundation. You know, mm. think of Harry Potter apparently is, is pretty much all of those stories are just, just refitted Greek mythology and, and even Cersei is a character in Game of Thrones. Yeah. And, and some of that storyline seems to relate. Maybe it answers some of the questions about where our society comes from, that these are mm. the stories that we're really founded on. And so going yeah. right back to the source can be really interesting and then having people that have almost done that for us and yeah. kind of making it a little bit more accessible. So sounds like they've done yeah. that well. I think it's so funny. We think we've come so far, but even people would look at what we're doing, they go, oh, it's so innovative. But really at its first principles, no, this is the stuff we're talking about since the beginning of time. So how far have we come or are we just coming full circle? There we go. What, measure what matters. Yes. That's what it's all about. Very good. All right, look, let's wrap it up. We'll certainly stay in touch. Hopefully we can work together in some capacity going forward and fly the flag for effective impact measurement because that's so vital. That would be wonderful. Thank you, John. A delight. Pleasure. And great to have you here at Hub Australia. All right. Bye for now. Bye.